Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery. This is Anne. I'm really excited to have Tim Challies with me on today's episode. He is a Christian and a husband to Aileen and a father of three children aged 12 to 18. He worships and serves as a pastor at Grace Fellowship Church in Toronto, Ontario, where he primarily gives attention to mentoring and discipleship. He is a book reviewer for World Magazine, co-founder of Cruciform Press, and has written three books, including The Discipline of Spiritual Discernment, The Next Story, Visual Theology, Do More Better, and the newest, A Visual Theology Guide to the Bible. He writes daily at www.challies.com, and that is C-H-A-L-L-I-E-S. Welcome, Tim. So I contacted Tim after I read one of his blog posts at challies.com, and it was entitled, Eight Sins You Commit Whenever You Look at Porn. And I was so impressed with this. I just wanted him to come on the podcast to talk about how he came up with this article and some of the concepts that he teaches in the article. So one of the reasons why I was extremely impressed with the article is that it said that men who use pornography are participating in sexual assault, which I couldn't agree with more. Can you tell me why you came to that conclusion, Tim? Sure. A little bit of background is many years ago now, I had been talking to young men and starting to realize that as they were looking forward to life, they were looking forward to meeting somebody and marrying and settling into life. As I started talking to them and really hearing them, I realized that a lot of them, one of the real desires they had in getting married was to find someone upon whom they could act out all the porn they had seen over the years. And so Yes, they were looking for a wife, but they were actually really, in a sense, looking for someone they could act out porn with. And that just showed me how much today's young men had been immersed in pornography. This was something new to me. You know, somebody who grew up before the internet, I didn't have that kind of access to it from a young age as so many people do today. And so I started writing about the topic. And this was at a time before there was a ton of books on it and a ton of podcasts and other stuff as there is now. And I quickly saw that there's something intrinsically violent about pornography. There's something intrinsically violent about that kind of sexual transgression. And really, I came to see even more that most of the people or many of the people who are involved in making pornography are doing so against their will or they're doing so because it's their last option or something else. And I'm sure you know that tons of the pornography in the world comes out of very impoverished countries where uh, people are taken advantage of, or this is the only way they can earn some money. And I realized that for us to look at pornography is then to participate in that violence. As you look at the Bible, you look at what it's like to think as a Christian, you see that God gave his law to us. You know, the God who made us told us how to live in this world. He made us so he can tell us how to live. He can set the the standards, set the rules. And we find early in the Bible, the Ten Commandments, right? These commandments that govern human behavior, both in our relationship to God and our relationship to other people. As we continue to read the Bible and Jesus comes, we find out what we should have known and many people did know all along, which is that these 10 laws, these 10 rules, 10 words from God, they weren't binary as in as long as you don't commit adultery, you're fine. We realize that each one of these laws actually summarizes a much wider ethic. And so Jesus would say, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, right? So that's what people have been told us what the law says. 
And he would say, but I say to you, anyone who looks at another person lustfully is guilty of breaking that law. So he took the very defined specific law and made it very broad. And so we can see that the very specific law was actually broadened. It was meant to be that way all along to hold that standard of do not commit adultery. It's not just to not fall into bed with, with somebody to whom you're not married, but it's to honor other people um, sexually. It's to not think lustfully about them and so on. As we expand what's meant by these laws, by this rule God gives us for life, we see that he expects very, very high standards of us. And then if we participate in a sin that demands violence, we're participating in that violence as well. Absolutely. I think another thing that I have learned, and I'm so grateful for the commandments for this reason, is that they are not just for us as a criteria as to whether or not we get into heaven, right? For example, like if you commit adultery, you won't go to heaven. And if you don't, you will, you know, something like that. I like how you said binary. It is to make sure that in our time here on earth, that we don't harm other people, that we're able to serve them in a way that does not harm them. And we make the world a better place. We make it more peaceful. We make it more kind. We make it like heaven will be here now. And I don't think a lot of people think of the commandments in that way, because if every single person in the entire world obeyed the commandments, the level of destruction and harm caused to other people would be completely eliminated or mostly eliminated. I mean, we all make mistakes, obviously, but the level of harm would be seriously and greatly reduced. Sure. And you think about how Jesus summarized those laws. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So all those 10 laws are summarized in two. Live for the glory of God. And to do that, you live for the good of other people. And so if everyone on this earth were living for the glory of God, so they want their behavior to shine a spotlight on God, how do they do that? By only ever doing good to other people, yes, you would have a perfect world. Yeah, which would be awesome. Let's work toward that. Um, I recently did an episode about how porn use constitutes adultery, and your article outlines why this is true. Why do you think some people discount porn as just entertainment? Yeah, well, I think there's various ways we can get to that. For one, we're used to seeing sex as entertainment when we watch television, when we watch movies, right? Where there's something that's very, very similar to pornography that we're watching for entertainment purposes. So if you've immersed yourself in that, it's not much of a step into actually just straight out getting rid of the movie and just watching the sexual component of it. So that may be part of it. Um, and again, just looking through what Jesus says, uh, committing adultery is not just um, having a sexual relationship with someone to whom you're not married, but it's even lusting after that person, right? It's even desiring that person, looking at that person uh, as an object, objectifying the person. Um, and so you do, uh, according to Jesus's standard, when your heart desires something in that way, you've given your heart to it, you're allowing your heart to long for it, you've already committed that sin. Even if you haven't gone all the way, you're still guilty of transgressing that rule. Because Jesus isn't just interested in moderating our behavior behavior as if we can have evil desires, but as long as we restrain those desires, we're good. No, we're to be changed from the inside out so our desires are good. And therefore, our behavior is good. We work from the inside out, right? What we do simply reflects who we are on the inside. And so we're to be changed, transformed from the inside out. Yeah. And I think that is so important because you're not just sinning against the other person and lusting after them, but in so doing 
right? Because you have an active lust behavior happening. That also means that you're omitting something on the other side. You're not paying attention to the spouse you're currently married to or giving her the attention that she deserves or giving her your fidelity or your loyalty. So it's both that you're harming the person you're lusting after and you're harming the person that you're ignoring due to that lust. Right. And then you can go farther to say you're also showing your discontentment with God. You're criticizing God for not giving you someone or giving you something. And you're expressing this dissatisfaction and how God has related to you as if he's holding back blessings or as if he would love you more if he gave you this person or this experience. So I don't think we can overestimate the depravity of human nature as displayed in this kind of sin. Yeah, I agree with you. At betrayal trauma recovery, we call it abusive. We say this type of behavior of pornography use is abusive to your spouse. And some people have told me that's too extreme. And I tell them there's no other word I can think of that shows the severity of this behavior, right? It it is so harmful that just to say, yeah, it's not good or it hurts someone isn't going far enough because it's one of the most damaging behaviors that can happen within a marriage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, before I came on here, I had to spend some time thinking about that and I haven't totally reached a conclusion yet. I certainly understand why you say it. And I completely agree that in many cases, pornography use is tied closely to abuse or is a form of abuse in its own way. I'm not sure I would go to the extent of saying all pornography use is abusive in every case, but I certainly understand what you're getting at. I'd want to distinguish between someone who sort of falls into it. This is a new thing. They suddenly find themselves looking at it and they're repentant and remorseful versus somebody who's really just hardened in it and really enjoying this and doesn't care what his wife thinks about it and all that. From my point of view, I would say that every instance is abusive in and of itself, whether or not the person is an abuser, right, or is an abusive person would be, do they know that it's harmful and continue to engage in it? And also, do they engage in all of what I call the comorbidity behaviors? So do they also lie? Do they also manipulate people in order to hide their behavior? Let's let's talk about that for a minute. Let's talk about the deceit. You mentioned in your article that men commit the sin of deceit when they view porn. Tell me how you came to that conclusion. Yeah, I think that's just by being an accountability partner to some people and just watching other people's behavior. Um, I don't want to flip around, but, you know, my wife, too, is involved with helping several women in this issue. And the one thing we see again and again is deceit, that when people commit this sin, they cover their tracks. And so that deceit can take different forms. That deceit can be covering up your behavior, so erasing your browser history or erasing covenant eyes or whatever in the hope that people won't see it. It can be the failure to report behavior. When you've told someone, you know, you're going to help me through this. I'm enlisting you to help me. I really want to overcome this. I will tell you when I've fallen into this behavior. And then you can deceive people by not telling them, right? So it can be sort of active and passive in that sense. 
And then there's the deceit of even as a Christian, you know, Lord's Supper is ongoing ritual Christians participate in that draws us close to Christ. And before we take Lord's Supper, we're meant to examine ourselves and to see, do I have any behavior in my life that is ongoing and unrepentant that should really alarm me that I'm refusing in this area to conform my behavior to what God calls me to. And if week after week I'm taking, participating in the Lord's Supper, uh, I'm deceiving myself, I'm deceiving people around me, and in a sense I'm trying to deceive God and thinking that, no, I'm dealing with this behavior when I'm not. Um, ultimately, unrepentant sin like that can be proof that I'm not truly a Christian, I'm not truly saved. And so self-deceit is a very, very dangerous thing to fall into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Many, many of our clients of betrayal trauma recovery, their husbands are participating in that level of deceit. And that would be yet another reason why I use the word abuse, because it's repeated deceit, repeated deception, repeated infidelity, right? Which causes so many problems. Yeah. And I think we're all capable of distinguishing between that, you know, as I said earlier, that occasional or I've met people who didn't know they were just young and immature and just fell into it versus the person who really is being deceptive and hiding it and his behavior is falling down, you know, into that comorbidity, as you said, I like that, you know, just sort of falling into deeper and deeper behaviors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So before your article, I had not thought of porn use as a form of greed before, but that was on your list. Can you describe why porn use is selfish and exploitative in nature, feeding the spirit of greed? Sure. Yeah. I drew that from the Bible as well, from 1 Thessalonians 4, where this guy Paul is writing to a church and he's really warning them about sexual immorality. He's telling them of the importance as a Christian, you, you become Christians. How do you behave now that you're a Christian? You're to abstain from sexual immorality. And the positive side of that commandment is to control your own body in holiness and honor. And as he talks about that, he warns that nobody transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger and all these things. When he uses that word wrong, that's a word that's related to greed or to fraud. So he's essentially saying that this kind of sexual sin in which pornography would fall under it, it's a form of defrauding other people. It's taking that from them something that is not yours to have. So there's that aspect to the greed, but there's also the aspect that you can see that when people fall into pornography, initially a small amount will satisfy, but they have to push themselves into darker stuff and into greater quantity of stuff. So if one moment of girls in bathing suits will satisfy in year one, by year five or 10, chances are you need hours of it and you need darker and more depraved acts in order to feed the soul. And as you study the human brain and all these things, you understand why that is, that your body craves deeper and deeper of the chemical experiences. And so there's a form of greed there too, in the sense it's almost like overeating or overindulging in anything. It takes more and more and more to give you the same experience that you wanted. And if you talk to certain people who have been addicted to drugs or something, they may say that all their life they've been chasing that first high. You know, that first time they experienced heroin, it gave them some experience they've always been trying to find again. And I think pornography can be like that. You spend your whole life indulging in it to a deeper degree, trying to recover the shock, the electric feeling you had the first time. And it really is a cascading kind of thing in that sense. Yeah, we see that all the time, how it escalates. 
So as a Christian, I feel like pornography leaves a void where the spirit won't go because the spirit has boundaries. And some of my listeners aren't religious, but for our Christian friends, why do you think the spirit is so offended by pornography and why does it warn so strongly against it? Well, there is a sense in which sexual sin is a particularly deep or sensitive kind of sin. The Bible says every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. There's something innate to humanity that's offended or that's uh, caught up in sexual sin in a way other sins like theft or harming people is not. Our sexuality is so close to who we are as human beings. It's an essential part of our humanness. You can also see in that passage I was talking about earlier, 1 Thessalonians 4, whoever disregards this, this warning against sexual sin, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So we're told that the Holy Spirit is warning us about this sin. So as Christians, we believe we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, that when we come to Christ in repentance and faith, his spirit lives within us. And this spirit, he engages with us to warn us away from sin and to assure us we can overcome any temptation through his power. So we no longer have to sin. Sin is never inevitable. We've always got through the Holy Spirit what we need to say no to that sin and to do what's right. Over time, when we give in to a sin like pornography again and again and again, we're constantly shoving the Spirit away. We're constantly saying, no, we don't want to take hold of what you're offering us. And eventually, it's like the Spirit just kind of allows us to go. He sort of hands us over to our sin. You can read about that slide into sin in Romans chapter one. So yeah, the Holy Spirit can be offended in that sense. Ignoring or pushing the spirit away continually is something that we see frequently with our clients' spouses. And I think it's really interesting because it's not just with the sexual sin, but it's also with truth. Men who are engaging in this type of abusive behavior are continually refusing to be honest. They have sort of a fantasy world that they've created in where they are a victim, perhaps, of their wife's lack of love or lack of respect or something. And in this way, they're refusing to stand in truth and take accountability for what they've done and for the damage that they've caused. And my belief is that through truth and through standing in truth, that's their only way out. It's the only way that they'll be able to make restitution and actually have their hearts changed. Well, I think we have to be very, very careful about pushing away the spirit and discounting that presence within us that does afflict our conscience and warn us away. I think we have to guard against that hardening of spirit and be very, very concerned if we see it. On the other hand, I want to, to say clearly that nobody is beyond forgiveness in this way, and God is gracious and willing to forgive. And we have to believe that for all the eagerness we've ever felt towards sin, God is even more eager to extend forgiveness to us. So um, I wouldn't want any man to think that he has sinned beyond God's forgiveness. I agree with you. In fact, I think that's one thing that kept me stuck in an abusive relationship for so long was my belief in forgiveness. I want to talk about that for just one minute in that I was continually forgiving and so grateful for the Lord's grace and his mercy, knowing that people can repent and looking forward to that, not knowing that I was being lied to and that my now exes, I'll put in air quotes, repentance was just a facade and it was not actual true repentance. And so that's what we want to educate people about 
is what does true repentance actually look like and how does that differ from the facade of repentance, which can keep a woman stuck in the abuse cycle over and over again? How can we differentiate the two to hold a perpetrator accountable so he actually can change and to keep women safe from infidelity and abuse? And so I think that's really important to make that distinction because many women are manipulated through that line of reasoning. Their ex will say, well, don't you believe in Jesus? And don't you believe in this? When they haven't actually changed. And so they're basically asking their wife to just tolerate abuse in the name of Jesus, which is very, very wrong. We want to make sure that women are educated about that so that they can be at the feet of Jesus and partake of his grace and goodness. In some cases, by way of having the atonement cover the consequences of someone who is choosing not to repent, right? And so that they can move on in peace and happiness in any way that they need to. Do you have thoughts about that? Yeah. Forgiveness does not preclude consequences. So I forgive you and we're getting a divorce are not mutually exclusive things. You can forgive somebody even while still saying this marriage is over. You have violated your vows within this marriage through committing adultery. And even while I forgive you, that's not the same as saying I'm going to stay married to you. That forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean the eradication of all consequences. It doesn't necessarily mean that we'll go back to having a relationship again. You know, the abused can't necessarily maintain a relationship with the abuser. So there may not be that full reconciliation. I think there still can be that I'm choosing to forgive because that's what God says to do and that's good for me. But that doesn't mean there still won't be consequences, even very serious or dire consequences for what you've done. And I think Christians have often confused those things where to say, I forgive you means, oh, and I'm not going to report this behavior to the police, or I forgive you means we had to stay married. I want to distinguish between those things. And I also think we can be too quick to forgive in the sense of we haven't really seen remorse and repentance from that person. So to take the time and to work that through, perhaps with counselors, with pastors, with friends, and then to make sure that that response of forgiveness is genuine. From my experience, I was only able to truly forgive when I was safe from the abuse. So my ex-husband continues to lie. He continues to manipulate people. He continues to think that he's the victim in this scenario. And so because of that, I have cut off all contact with him. And I look forward to the day where he can live in truth. And when he does that, my heart will be very happy. But since that's not the case now, I continue to hold that no contact boundary. But that no contact boundary has also enabled me to have peace in my own heart and forgive him freely for where he currently is, right? Currently, he's in a space where he cannot live in truth or refuses to. And so I can forgive him for being like that. I can say, oh, I'm so sorry that you are living in this untruth. And I forgive you and go your way. I wish you well. And I am safe. And that's the difference between trust and forgiveness. I can forgive him, but because he is not trustworthy, I don't need to trust him and I can set boundaries around his continued harmful behavior, which is what we teach people here at Betrayal Trauma Recovery. Get to safety, 
And then pray and hope that that person can make those changes in order to be healthy enough or safe enough to interact with. That is God's goal. He also wants them to be able to have a healthy, peaceful relationship. But God is not asking us to live in chaos with someone who refuses to stand in truth, which is what amounts to living with an active abuser looks like is that it's just utter chaos and it's harmful to our souls. Yeah, I guess I'd want us all to think about the value of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of what Jesus has done. She doesn't live before this person as if he's the one who judges her, as if he's the one who she has to please. She lives before Jesus Christ. She's been fully and finally accepted and she can now live in peace and freedom. She's not captive to this other person, to this abuser. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is just such, such good news. I am so grateful for you coming on today's episode and talking about the commandments. I have such a deep, deep love for God. I guess I should say gratitude for God for giving us these commandments that can help us be safe. And I do want to just share that women in this situation, if they're in a relationship with someone who is refusing to stand in truth and refusing to obey the commandments, you obeying the commandments yourself will bring so much power into your life. As I have chosen to obey the commandments and so many other women in this situation have, I think that God enables us to walk through the Red Sea on dry ground. When we get across the Red Sea, then we have to wander around the wilderness for a long time. It's not an easy road, but as we are obedient, the Lord will bless us. Thank you so much for coming on this episode today, Tim. You're very welcome. I realized recently that I haven't said thank you to you for listening to this podcast. We're over 330,000 downloads now. And thank you for allowing me to share my story with you and to share the stories of so many other victims. It really is humbling to think that so many women are listening because I, you know, I don't know what I'm doing, doing most of the time, but I really appreciate your support. This is the last episode in September. Hopefully things are settling down for everyone with school being in session and getting back into a routine. This is when things really got bad for me was during this time. My ex was actually arrested September 18th of 2015. Um, And so this time of year, I think back on that. It's been four years since that time. And how much my life has changed, how I learned how to set boundaries through my experience, how I've met all of you, I started podcasting, so many things have changed in the four years since that happened. And my life is genuinely more peaceful and more happy. Now I'm focusing on self-care and I'm focusing on my children and life feels really good. I have a lot of hope for the future. If you thought that things would get better and it's not getting better, please reach out for help. Our Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group is the best group in the world with the most amazing women and the most amazing coaches. And we're always adjusting. Uh, For example, we did not have a policy against swearing in Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group before. We figured, you know, people can just express how they would like to. But some of the women were feeling unsafe about the language, so we made a policy for that. So the cool thing about our group is that we're always adjusting based on client feedback. Your safety is our top priority, and we want to make sure that everyone feels safe and that they feel like they belong. So please check out the Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group schedule. We're always adding more sessions. Check it frequently since it's updated frequently. 
Individual session-wise, I still am going to coach Peggy for meditation sessions. I highly recommend it. For me, it's the only thing that really helps me at this point because talking isn't really super helpful. So I'm meditating more frequently, attending yoga. I'm also trying to cultivate more gratitude and a positive attitude, which is hard when you go through this. You who have listened to this podcast for a long time, you've probably heard me be, um, I wouldn't say negative, but just really uh, live in reality, right? The, my reality was sad and it was dark and hard things had happened. And I'm so excited to be at the point where now my reality is that in being positive or looking on the bright side that I'm not denying that something terrible is happening because I've fashioned my life and the boundaries that I have to be able to have a really positive, healthy life. And so can you. We invite you to join the Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group. Our professional coaches really get it. And you will talk to them in person. You'll see their face. You'll get to know them. I made a conscious choice to never have like a video sort of module that you watch and fill out a worksheet or texting or you're not really actually talking to a real person. Because isolation is one of the number one reasons that women are having a hard time or they're not making healthy choices to set boundaries. So that's what sets Betrayal Trauma Recovery apart from other organizations is that it's daily and frequent up to four group sessions a day for Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group. We have a free forum on Facebook. We have individual sessions that you can go to as frequently as you would like. And all of it is live, except for, of course, the Facebook forum. But other than that, it's all live. So I'm really proud of what we've built here. We have so many women that have come together that make BTR possible. Virginia on social media and digital education and Coach Joy and I could name about 20 women who put their heart and soul into BTR. If you're interested in being a social media volunteer or helping out in any way, please contact us. Go to our contact page on our site, btr.org. This podcast is brought to you by your recurring donations. So please go to btr.org today, scroll down to the bottom and set your monthly recurring donations. Thank you to those of you who have already done it. And if you haven't yet, please do that so that I can continue to spread this message of hope and peace to women throughout the world. And also a big thank you to women who have rated this podcast on iTunes or other podcasting apps. Every single rating helps women find us. And until next week, Stay safe out there.